Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm William Hosea. Welcome once again to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning program. And for 13 years, we remain Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening. I'm Cornelius Wright. Also in today's broadcast, we'll highlight upcoming Black History Month events, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first up, as a warning to our listeners... We will be dealing with a very sensitive topic this evening, and it may not be suitable for young children. On Sunday, February the 4th, the world will witness the playing of Super Bowl 52, the National Football League championship game, which is the capstone of the 2017 NFL season. In 2017, over 1 million people attended the game hosted in Houston, 111.3 million tuned in to watch Super Bowl 51 and a 30-second commercial cost on average was $7.7 million. Last year, the National Retail Federation estimated gross earnings from this gladiator spectacle surpassed $15.5 billion. In spite of the financial windfall that each Super Bowl creates, human sex trafficking is supported by this sporting spectacle and other large national gatherings and conventions. This year's hostess city is Minneapolis. In a recent commentary appearing in the Star Tribune by Doug Wardlow, he states that millions will gather with family and friends to watch the Super Bowl. But right here in Minnesota, too many will never have felt so alone. Much has been made about the uptick of sex trafficking activity that occurs during the Super Bowl. And as the big event comes to Minneapolis, Minnesota's law enforcement agencies are taking the right steps, being proactive. That is welcome news. The bad news is that long after the Super Bowl comes and goes, sex trafficking in Minnesota will still be a major problem. The FBI has identified the Twin Cities as one of the nation's 13 largest centers for child prostitution. A 2010 study found that each month in Minnesota, at least 213 girls are sold for sex, an average of five times per day, through the Internet and escort services. This was a conservative estimate and didn't include hotel, street, or gang activity. Tonight on Bring It On, we have amassed a roundtable comprised of clergy, social providers, and law law enforcement to delve into this dark industry. While we will not be able to cover all aspects of this in one interview, we will attempt to address topics ranging from the typical profile of a sex traffic victim to what the public can do to intervene on a victim's behalf. Once again... As a warning to our listeners, we are dealing with a very sensitive topic this evening, and it may not be suitable for young children. Joining us are David Shunk, pastor of Vineyard Community Church, Tina Lampke, executive director of Hannah Center, Ruben Marte, captain with the Indiana State Police, Detective Roger Logston with the Indiana State Police, and Alan Bell, the regional coalition director for Indiana Trafficking Assistance Program. Welcome all to Bring It On. Thank you for having us. Awesome. Uh, Detective Logsdon, would you mind 
starting off the uh, discussion by by framing the the whole sex trafficking issue from a national perspective. Yes, as you uh, talked about uh, the dollar signs just a little bit ago, it's uh, human trafficking is a unfortunately a, a multi billion dollar industry. Um, one estimate, it's the second leading. Uh, it, crime industry compared underneath uh, the drug industry. So, uh, as you see, this is a, a multi-million dollar, uh, uh, trafficking, uh, issue. So who, who's behind this? Uh, we always hear, uh, mafia, organized crime, uh, gangs. Who, who, who's driving the whole thing? You know, those, those can be involved, but we're looking at just local, uh, street, uh, what we would call pimps. Um, or tra- our traffickers around Indiana, what we're seeing. You know, one thing, just as we're getting started, can we define and compare trafficking, forced domestic servitude, and kidnapping? Or sometimes are they all intertwined? Yeah, they can be. Um, obviously, there, there are some differences uh, with kidnapping and human trafficking. They have a lot of similarities according to the Indiana law. Um, it, under kidnapping, um, a person who knowingly or intentionally is removed by another person by f- uh, fraud, uh, enticement, force of threat of force, uh, is kidnapping. Now, it's a similar language for human trafficking. A person who, by force, threat of force, or fraud, knowingly or intentionally recruits, harbors, and transports another person and has them engage in commercial sex or labor trafficking, sex trafficking or the labor trafficking aspect of it. So that adds another element to the kidnapping. Mm -hmm. There has to be somebody has to perform services either through labor or sex trafficking by force, fraud, or coercion unless they're under the age of 18. Force, fraud, or coercion. And, and we say that a lot because under the federal law, that's the words that are used. In Indiana, it's the by force, threat of force, fraud, uh, those those terms instead of the coercion factor. Now, you mentioned that age factor of 18. Uh, under 18, I guess there's a different list of charges that will be added on to that? It would still be uh, uh, human trafficking or sex trafficking, but just you do not have to prove that the the minor was forced or into the fraud. It's just if they're engaged in commercial sex, mm-hmm. it's automatically human trafficking at that portion. I will add to when he says commercial sex, um, it's commercial sexual conduct. So that's just not intercourse. That's stripping, lab dancing, that's anything sexual in nature for anything of some commercial value. So that's not just money, that's drugs, that's a place to stay, that's uh, anything that you could put a dollar amount on for anything of sexual in nature is commercial sexual conduct. And if the person is under the age of 18, then that's human trafficking. Wow, I, I can see there's really a lot to wrap your arms around on this issue. So Pastor Shunkin from uh, Vineyard Community Church and Tina Lampkin from Little Way House, right? Uh, Hannah Center. I knew that. <laughs> um, what would be, for either one of you, what would be the typical profile of a traffic victim and, uh, and a handler? Typically, a traffic uh, a victim, while they get into it, uh, they're recruited when they're between, I believe it's 12 and 14 years old is the average age of a, a girl that enters into uh, or becomes trafficked, a young girl between the ages of 12 and 14. Um, generally, uh, the profile for a victim would be somebody who's very vulnerable, 
somebody uh, maybe is a runaway and, uh, uh, you know, they're on the streets and they find themselves without a place to stay and uh, traffickers prey on vulnerability. And, and that would be a, a major thing right there. Tina, what, what about socioeconomic uh, factors? Socioeconomic factors definitely play a part. Um, for me, my first um, introduction to this uh, was about 15 years ago. I got a call that there was a young girl who was 14. She was pregnant by, uh, with twins, and she had been prostituted by her mother's boyfriend in order to pay off a drug debt. Um, she had actually been kidnapped from her father, who had primary custody, and um, fortunately he had been looking for her for a number of years, and, and we were able to help reunite her with her, with her father. Um, so you, you definitely do see uh, that factor. Um, but, you know, we've also, I think one of the things when you talked about the typical uh, person doing the trafficking, he can look like the faces around this room. Um, and I know of at least one case, um, one situation that uh, worked with young women here, the trafficker was a woman who was actually um, a mom of a teenage girl, and she was recruiting her daughter's friends and getting them into the sex trade. Uh, so, you know, it really can be the person next door. Uh, in you know, the state of Ohio, we saw that some of the people who were involved in, in human trafficking went all the way up to state office holders. Uh, so, Again, there there is this mental image we have and this uh, TV image of the pimp and you know the the fur coats and the giant chains, uh, but they can you know just as easily be wearing a polo shirt and go to your church or or work right next to you. Now that that brings something to mind that just I'm sitting here getting angry. Penalties for the trafficker and for the person on the other side who is using the victims. Um, are the penalties different state and federally? What are the penalties for people who get caught for this? In Indiana, um, it's a level four felony. Um, if uh, a, a minor is involved, it's a it's go up to level three felony, which is one of the top felonies. Uh, level six is the, the lowest felony. So it goes up in different levels um, according to um, the age and um, the circumstances. Uh, federal court, there are a lot stiffer penalties in federal court. If we can uh, build a case and work with our federal partners uh, and taking the case federal, those are much better um, in the prosecutions and getting uh, stiffer penalties for that. Past Super Bowls, we have have a Super Bowl next week. And obviously, as we're sitting here talking about this, everyone knows what's going to be going on in Minnesota next week. How can we prevent this? How can it be stopped? I know that's pretty simplistic and just kind of out there. But, I mean, what what steps can people take if they see something amiss um, just in general for people who are the customers to let them know the damage that they are doing? I would say the thing that I would suggest people do is just become educated on what human trafficking looks like. What are the red flags? Because as, as everybody's kind of spoken about, the there's no typical or, or profile for a trafficker, right? So it, you can't just go out and look for a van and somebody acting suspicious. could be anybody. So 
get some education, uh, just kind of look more into the red flags just looking for like next week. Um, <clears throat> young, when we talk about minors, so maybe a young woman who has got a bunch of hotel keys, maybe a, a minor who is dressed way older than she is. Um, just little small things like that and, and really just trusting your gut. I feel like in most of the trainings that I've gone to, I've talked with people who've had an instance occur where they felt like something wasn't right and they just didn't know what to do. Or it felt like, ah, something's not right with this situation. And they just walked away. And then 10 years later, they sit in my training and they're like, oh, this sounds exactly like what happened 10 years ago when I was at the supermarket or this young lady came into our agency. And so just being able to just kind of educate yourself and knowing what to look for is kind of the first thing that I would suggest people do. And then what do you do as you kind of brought that up? Well, in, in law enforcement, obviously, there, there are only so many uh, law enforcement officers that are investigating human trafficking. And there's only so many stings, right? undercover stings or any places you can do um, to, to look at it on the law enforcement side. But I think Alan's... Uh, uh, set it right about getting education out to the public to get more eyes out there to, to observe any kind of signs that if it looks suspicious, uh, report it to the national hotline um, because it'll get directed and funneled down to the right agency that needs to investigate it. Um, because we're you know we can't be on top of everything and see everything, so uh, we we must rely on on the citizens to to report that to us. So on on the um, social services side of it. Uh, what's the most common, uh, uh, thing, a uh, situation that you see when someone comes to your organization having been a victim of human trafficking? You see a lot of post-traumatic stress symptoms. Mm -hmm. Uh, you see, uh, someone who <clears throat> is often withdrawn, depressed, anxious. Uh, how, how long does that last? The, the, the withdrawal and depression? It can, I mean, it lasts until they're receiving proper treatment and living in a place that's safe. Um, I know one young woman I, I worked with, it took about five years for her to say she felt that she was okay. And that was five years um, where fortunately she had tremendous family support. Um, Dad had great insurance. She had uh, all the mental health treatment she needed. She had a supportive church community. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, if this, these symptoms aren't something that tend to go away on their own, uh, it tends to become worse. Um, we see a lot of self-medicating, um, mm. using drugs or alcohol just to numb the pain, not necessarily because they want to get high, because it's the only way they can get some sleep. Um, and unfortunately, too, um, a lot of the, I would say, 95% of the women that I've worked with and the national averages bear it out to be not quite that high, but fairly high are already um, women who've had some previous history of being sexually assaulted. So um, often the treatment isn't just dealing with what's happened while they're trafficking, but it's going back and dealing with what may have happened to them in their childhood and their home uh, at, a, at a relative's house and um, bringing the help they need to address that from a, a physical, emotional, spiritual level. Um, the other thing is um, that every trafficking victim I've worked with, um, they have not had proper education and they've not had proper health care. So that's another thing you have to really look at. Um, when we have somebody come in, you know, to say our maternity home, 
we're looking at that they haven't been to a dentist in 10 years. Mm -hmm. They uh, haven't been to a doctor in years. Um, and so it really takes a holistic approach of trying to um, almost start from the beginning and say, okay, what does a person need to be healthy? And we have to start there. So, you know, you start with the basics of, of trying to help them feel safe, uh, trying to help them um, let their guard down just a little bit by, um, you know, going very slowly and letting them even just begin to learn how to make decisions for themselves because so many of these uh, young women have been in a position where they've had no ability even to choose what to put on that day or, or what they're going to have to eat or drink. So psychologically, you're saying they pretty much have to learn how to walk and talk again. Yeah, it is. It, it's very deep, deep wounding that, that requires a, a multifaceted healing approach. Pastor Shunk, I hope you have a good memory because I have a three-part question. <laughs> and I have to put it on you that way because I'll forget it. <laughs> but exactly what role does the church play, uh, number one? Do you interact with Tina and her organization, and what can other churches do? We do interact with Tina and the uh, Hannah Center. And uh, uh, the, the church serves a, a purpose of, uh, for one thing, um, providing uh, spiritual support and helping them people heal emotionally and spiritually, but also resourcing out into areas that uh, where more professional help is needed. Uh, resourcing out into, you know, for for medical uh, resources and and things like that, and, and seeing what we can to. Um, you know, it's a, a huge thing is for if somebody's been rescued off of the street. Where do they go from there? Are there safe houses around? There's not enough safe houses around for uh, uh, victims of trafficking. They're becoming more and more, uh, but there there aren't enough. And a lot of times, you know, if there is no place to place them, they end up back on the street. Wow. You know, it's interesting. That was the the question I wrote here: resources for victims. And as uh, Tina was talking. Most of these young ladies obviously don't have health care. Maybe some are lucky if their families do. Um, so how do they get the resources to get that mental health help that they need, to get the dental help they need, to, to just start all over again? As Pastor Shunk said, there's not enough safe houses. So what do they do at that point? You know, a big part of it is, um, again, sitting down with them, talking one-on-one -on -one and finding out, okay, uh, if they're under 18, let's talk about your parents and if that is a safe place. You know, sometimes it's the parent who put them in that position. And then you have to look at emancipation or reporting to Child Protective Services. Um, you know, anytime they're under 18, we report to Child Protective Services to make sure that um, that their needs are met. For the ones that are over 18, um, typically, they, you know, they've made their pimps a lot of money, but they have nothing to show for it. Um, in fact, many of them end up with uh, charging them so much for the clothing that they're forced to wear and the food that they're allowed to eat um, that they end up uh, with the pimp selling them they're in greater debt. And so with their income level being so low, many of them qualify for state uh, health care assistance. Uh, we're fortunate here in Monroe County that we have volunteers in medicine and the Futures Clinic who in these situations work really hard to get people in and, and get their uh, their health care needs met. But um, you know, for our agency, it's it's having them assigned one-on-one -on -one to a case manager 
who's going to help them find the resources for every area of their life. And um, those services are all provided free of charge. So if there's someone listening who, who's been in that situation or knows of someone in that situation, uh, we just want them to know help's available. We're here. I will say our, our program, the Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program, uh, what we do is we provide education, but what we are, one of our other initiatives is to create a service provider network. So as victims come into the church or come into your agency and they need services, so we'll have a network of places who we've trained and who have some competency on this issue to provide those services. And then one of the other things that we do is we provide some reimbursement for those services. So if they don't have uh, insurance or can't afford to pay for those services, we'll reimburse Mm. the service provider agency for providing services. So law enforcement does interact with social services then? Yeah. For our listening audience, um, we have here with us this afternoon uh, David Shunk, pastor of the Vineyard Community Church, Tina Lampke, the executive director of Hannah Center, Ruben Marte, the captain with the Indiana State Police, Detective Roger Logston with the Indiana State Police, and Alan Bell, the regional coalition director for the Indiana Trafficking Assistance Program. And we're talking about a very sensitive issue, child trafficking. Um, Detective Logsdon, uh, what is the most common scenario or set of, a set of circumstances wherein a victim, uh, someone falls victim to sex trafficking? Does that make sense? Kind of an example of a, a case. Um, Examples that we're like, trying to ask, I guess, um, talking about if a, a youth, say it, we list a runaway youth that goes out into the streets, um, needs a place to stay, needs food, needs shelter, needs, needs those needs met to, to survive. So they meet up with another person who is, uh, as you see in the state law, it talks about the recruiting, harboring, or transporting a victim that could mean harboring and, you know, just recruit the recruitment of that girl. Um, so a lot of traffickers will have recruiters or uh, girls that work for him looking for other victims or other girls out on the street. So they try to prey on those that are vulnerable. Uh, so to go back to my scenario, a sample case would be, say, we have a runaway uh, who agrees to go stay at a hotel uh, with a, a male and maybe another female, just say it's a couple. Um, at that port time, they would uh, advertise them for sex, and maybe they didn't realize that until they got there. Then they get in too far, uh, uh, like she said earlier, about where they started getting in debt to them, uh, where they've already bought them a meal. They bought them, they maybe went and got their nails done or their hair done, so now they have to provide services for them, and that's how they get involved with this. Um, so we try to, and I should have said this at the beginning of the program, you know, we want to try to get away from that myth that it's the, the, the white van going down the street and, and kidnapping kids off the street as far as human trafficking and, and, and always in shackles or in cages or something like this. This is something that, that they're, they're lured into this either through social media. Uh, we see that where the social media is used a lot, um, to, to look at somebody that's vulnerable on the social media that, they're maybe mad at their parents and they make a comment. So then they make a comment back uh, that I can make your day better. And that's how they just start praying and, and recruiting through social media, 
on the streets. There's various ways that they'll be recruited, but we try to get away from that, uh, that, that kidnapping and, and, and being snatched, forcefully snatched off the street. Now we've talked about how they're recruited. How are victims rescued and how are the handlers apprehended and how are they count? How at that point do you start the counseling process? Well, there's various ways that they can be um, um, found yeah, through proactive law enforcement, uh, doing undercover stings. Um, also, there's there's uh, like we get reports through the hotline. Um, so uh, our DCS, Department of Child Services, will maybe interview a uh, a victim for something else, and this comes up during the interview, and then it's reported to law enforcement. So there's various ways. Uh, that we we help recover uh, uh, victims of trafficking, um, and and that's why we rely on other community resources because uh, us on the street, if we recover a victim of human trafficking, and maybe the we need help with that victim at that point to go get the services so we can do our investigation as law mm-hmm. enforcement. Now, once a year, we know we've got the Super Bowl. There's large conventions, you know, each year. Is there any kind of special task force that's just waiting in Minnesota right now, looking out for those signs of traffickers, since obviously the numbers are going to be there uh, in big numbers? I can't speak for Minnesota. Um, I have not. Uh, well, let me go back a little okay. bit. Indianapolis held yeah. the Super Bowl a few years yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah. um, how was that dealt with? Well, I think I think there was a more awareness at that point, um, and I think uh, that's this is when this all started. I think some of this public awareness started back then when we got the Super Bowl, um, and there were task force and uh, created for for that. I wasn't on it at that time, but um, but yes, I mean I, I think there's going to be a more proactive uh, uh, environment up there in Minnesota. Um, and Alan, do you? I was going to say. Um, one of the things about Minnesota is they are one of the states that are pretty proactive just in general in this movement. And that's why when you earlier, you kind of gave some statistics of things that have happened in Minnesota. If you look nationwide, there's a lot of states who, if you looked at the statistics of identified or reported cases, you'd think that trafficking isn't happening. And it's just because that a lot of states aren't proactive in it or looking for it. And Minnesota is one of those states. So I can imagine that there will be a task force and some things put in place to provide services for victims that once they're found and all that stuff. Okay, so we've talked about this on a national level. We've talked about how women are pretty much uh, entrapped into uh, this this culture. What kind of activities are we seeing here in Monroe County? Ruben, you look like you want to jump in there. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's tough for us, though, because this is something that when I asked, when when I got the call, I'm thinking I have to find the people that do this Mm -hmm. a lot on a regular basis. I don't. So that's why I reached out to uh, to his supervisor, and, and she was nice enough to allow uh, Roger to come down and talk to us. But that's something that I'm pretty sure is happening, but we don't have the resources to actually have people just dedicated to this particular problem only. Okay. So is it difficult? Oh, my God, it is so very difficult. Do we know it's happening? Yes, we do. But this is one particular crime that we we focus on right now. But I can tell you there's plenty more going on as well in Monroe County, although they all need attention as well. 
Um, but what we're doing right here, I think, is a good thing because what I've been thinking about is this: as as I'm watching everyone talk about this topic, is if we're talking about this and we actually getting the word out, other people are gonna be talking about it. That's good because now that th- when they see this, we plant. To me, I'm thinking we're planting a little seed, and if certain people are gonna educate themselves, okay, and find other resources. That's to me, that's how you get the word out. Because eventually, if someone could see something, they could easily call us, call someone, and then we get into it. Uh, however, we are doing the best. In fact, we were talking, he, he goes around and talks to other police agencies uh-huh. based on this particular topic. So we're being proactive as much as we can, but we've, we spread kind of thin as well. Now, I know it's difficult, you know, it's a difficult subject, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, but do you go into the schools? And talk to the students at a young age about some of these pitfalls and what to avoid. So our program, we have a, a youth curriculum that we go into schools and share with students. And it's centered around healthy relationships. So we don't go in and focus on this human trafficking and breaking it down. We look at some of the things that may make the youth vulnerable and we kind of address those and we talk about how we may find ourselves in situations that that we all of a sudden realize that we shouldn't be here, right? In the example that he gave earlier, he talked about a young lady being on the run and then ending up at a hotel and then realizing that there's something else going on here. So what we've seen is because these traffickers are, are so great at finding vulnerable youth, that they also are looking for youth who are vulnerable enough not to tell once it happens. So what we talk about is, yes, you may find yourself in this situation, but you still should be able to talk to somebody about it. Still go get help. Still call the police. Still do these things. Okay, so you go in and, and you explain to them um, how uh, how not to be vulnerable and place themselves into that situation. But if you're constantly telling them, don't play with matches, don't you have to explain to them that you're going to start a fire? Uh, do, do you have to tell them at some point that you can end up being a victim of, of human trafficking? And within our curriculum, we try not to tell them because teenagers are rebellious. We understand that it's just a teenage brain. So we don't tell them, hey, don't do this. We say, if you're going to do this, this may happen. These are the things that could happen, right? And then the way that we set the training up is we allow them to tell us what could happen. So if you find yourself at the mall with this person and this, what could happen next? So then they create the scenario. And then I would tell you that in, in most of the times it ends up back here. So uh, they do come up with sex trafficking on their own. Yep. Or okay. some type of version of being kidnapped or just a situation that as a teenager you don't want to find yourself in. And I think it's also important to note that a lot of young women and, and some young men end up in these situations through absolutely no fault of their own. Um, they're, they're forced into it by their situation. Um, every young woman that I have worked with has either had her life threatened or, um, you know, the one that breaks my heart the most is remembering her saying, they told me if I didn't do it, they would just get my little sister. Um, so I think there does need to be a, a tremendous amount of education, and I, and I love what is already happening. But I also think, um, as in most areas where you're talking about sexual assault, we have to be really careful that we're not in any way blaming the victims or making making them feel like if you allowed this to go one step, 
oh, you've really messed up. Um, you know, this can, um, you know, that can just make it harder for them to seek help. And so I do think it is, is incredibly important to educate them about safety, uh, but also, you know, just as, as I know your program does, be really honest of, you know, if somebody's asking you to send them a nude picture, um, that person is not someone who respects you. Uh, not that you're a bad girl, <laughs> not, not that you really messed up. Um, but you know, I've seen that used where, you know, a girl sends a picture to the guy that she thinks is the guy of her dreams. And all of a sudden it becomes, we're going to post this on the internet and send pictures to your, your dad and mom, unless you do this. Um, and so I think again, focusing so much on healthy relationships, I think educating parents and helping them understand that the pressures, um, that teenagers are facing, uh, because so many of them do get involved and educating, um, other adults that we need to look out for the kids who are isolated. Um, of every victim I've ever worked with, that's been a, a theme, isolation. They felt very alone. They didn't feel like they had anybody to go to. Um, it's one of the reasons that I love, like at Vineyard, that they've taken such a proactive approach of talking about this. And uh, I know that we even got the youth group involved in, in talking about it and sharing about it, um, because it really is going to take the adults um, being educated, parents, youth leaders, people who run hotels, healthcare providers. Um, we need to try to catch these things on the ground floor uh, before the abuse becomes worse than it already is. We are here this evening with David Shunk, pastor of the Vineyard Community Church, Tina Lamke from the executive director of Hannah Center, <coughs> Ruben Marte, captain with the Indiana State Police, Detective Roger Loxton with the Indiana State Police, and Alan Bell, the regional coalition director for Indiana Trafficking Assistance Program. And Tina, that brings up another question I wanted to uh, ask Pastor Shunk about. With the youth groups in your church, obviously your church has been doing some work on this, so you've got some experience, but how would other churches, I guess, should, would they call in someone like Alan to speak to the youth or should they try to do that on their own? What would you recommend the best way if you're going to have something like that in a, in a church environment for the youth groups to, um, or should we get, the, should they get the training from someone at this table? Uh, I think it's good to call in uh, somebody from, like, someone at this table to come in and talk. Uh, I, I I think it just it starts with uh, just getting educated and, and encouraging the congregation to do some research, to do some reading. Uh, what are the signs? You know, how, how big of a problem is human trafficking and, and you know, sex trafficking? Uh, so that the adults and, and, you know, then the kids, too, or, or uh, teenagers uh, realize this is something real going on, and then look at the different resources. There are are the resources like the everyone that's sitting around this table here. Um, uh, there are other organizations where you can call and have someone come in. Uh, uh, you know, Salvation Army does a lot of work with uh, uh, human trafficking. And, and that there is a, uh, uh, I'd like to, to uh, one thing, uh, there's a, uh, a a woman that was trafficked as a teenager uh, in a Detroit suburb. Her name is Teresa Flores, and she has a book out called The, the Slave Across the Street, the, where she tells her story. She ended up escaping uh, the trafficking, 
and she is now uh, heading an organization. You can go to a website, trafficfree.com, find out more about, you know, what she's doing. And she has a thing called, an organization called SOAP, Save Our Adolescents from Prostitution. They go into places like where they're holding a Super Bowl or a political convention or, you know, large gatherings like that. Yeah, that's, that, that's a big one too, political conventions. But, but they'll go into those places and they take in bars of soap with a special label on it with a number that, that girls can call or someone can call if they need help. If they're in a situation they can't get out of and they need help, They'll go, you know, they go and find one of those bars of soap, you know, in the, in the bathroom of hotels, bathroom of, you know, public bathrooms around. Well, they'll go out and distribute the, these, uh, uh, these bars of soap. And they've had numerous people rescued because the girls found a number to call, somewhere to call on that bar of soap. And that's something that the churches, youth organizations, any organizations can get involved in is helping to distribute, helping to put those things together and that. Uh, so yeah, that would be uh, uh, something that that we can do on a very practical level to help get word out and talk about a youth group getting involved. We'll have a youth group get together and and organize one of those uh, one of those things. Pastor Shunk, uh, Captain Marte and Detective Logsdon have uh, both explained that due to limited resources, it's kind of difficult for them to gauge how widespread the problem is in Monroe County. But what level of activity are you seeing through your work at the church? Uh, most of the level of activity I've seen is actually through the connection with Tina and the Hannah Center. Okay. Um, more so than, you know, through people, although we have had some coming into the church, I know. But uh, most of it has been through uh, the work of the Hanna Center that we're connected with. And Tina, you, you brought up a very interesting point that we just don't hear much about. You mentioned something about young boys being trafficked. Mm, absolutely. Um, we, we tend to think of the sexual abuse, sexual assault as being a, a crime against girls and a crime against women. Statistically speaking, um, they are a predominant number. Yeah. Um, but you know, depending on whose numbers you look at, um, on average, one in five boys will be sexually abused before reaching the age of eighteen. Um, so, we can't just direct all of our efforts uh, toward women, um, even though like they are certainly. Um, disproportionately high and and in Indiana um, African-American young girls are disproportionately high in the, the number of victims of trafficking um, H higher than the majority population yes yeah um, so that's something that um, I think is important to talk about yeah uh, you know are we are we reaching out to everyone are we getting the word out to all the communities are the community leaders speaking out about it and and our parents being educated um, you know, we, I think as, as a, I look at this not only as a social worker, but as the mom of an 18-year-old uh, daughter, uh, we've had many conversations um, and, you know, the conversations I had with my son's friends. And, you know, I just sit kids down all the time and say, if you're in a situation where you feel uncomfortable, I don't care what time it is, call me. And I can tell you over the last 10 years, you wouldn't believe how many, you know, tipsy girls and guys I've picked up from parties and, you know, brought them home and put them in bed 
and said, okay, now let's, you know, in the morning, let's talk about how we can get you some help. Um, but, you know, you'll, you'll think about that and you think, oh, nobody's ever going to call. They call. When you build relationships with, with teenagers, with kids, um, they know that, that you're someone and they know that you're someone that they can trust. They will make that call. And, you know, I think back, you know, that's just such a simple little thing of throwing your clothes on and, you know, driving, <laughs> you know, getting, getting uh, the young girls out and, you know, occasionally making a little anonymous 911 call after that to, to make sure nobody mm-hmm. else gets hurt there. Uh, but, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what am I doing? What, what can I as um, an individual do to make a difference in this? And, um, you know, it, it comes down to being available for help, but it's also, I think, our job to help remind teenagers that they are valuable, that they do have worth. Um, stop the dialogue about, you know, how, how awful teenagers are and really get to know them as individuals. Um, because, you know, I also know how many of the, not only trafficking victims, but rape victims, abuse victims, um, that, you know, the same, the same girl I picked up from a party once ended up bringing me three different friends who had been victims of rape and we could get them the treatment that they need. Um, so it really does, it takes, takes all of us. What message would everyone here at the table have for our listening audience out there who may be a user of some of these services? What message would you have them that may think that this is a victimless crime, it's no big deal? What would you tell them? Good question, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think, you know, um, in our maternity home, I can tell you about the girls who wake up in the middle of the night screaming and crying. I can tell you about the girls that we find sleeping in their closet because that's the only place they feel safe. Um, about uh, the self-harm they inflict upon themselves. Um just to try to dull the emotional pain, the psychological pain. Um, the young girls who are having to make a decision, do I become a single mom and try to raise a child at 16 or 17? Um, or do I go through um, the pain that, that results if I make a decision to place and, and say goodbye to my child? Um, the, the young women who will never be able to have children once, once they want to, uh, because of the, the STDs have hurt them to a point um, that they no longer can have kids. Um, it's not a victimless crime. And, you know, we talked about how law enforcement and they're, you know, they, they do some stings and I, I know they've done some tremendous work. Um, but, you know, if someone who, I know it would be terrifying, <laughs> but if somebody who has used young people in this way could go to the police and say, I want to make a change. I want to tell you where it's going to, where it's going on. And I want it to stop. Um, you know, that, that would have such an impact and would be such an act of bravery because maybe they don't, didn't think about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe they really didn't realize it. And allow me to pick it back off of what you just said. You know, I'm sitting here and thinking about this. I have been part of certain sting operations where the, the, the actual, uh, John would think, you know, this person is not in law enforcement. So my message to a person like that would be, you never know. If you keep going that path, it might be a police officer that you're approaching and you will be locked up. Now, the other thing is also on the human side of it, 
what if this was your daughter, your sister, your mother, a family member? So if there's something human about you that you think you could receive help to stop this, that's a human side. On the policeman side, keep in mind, I've been part of it. We have officers look like they're 12 years old, and they're not. So every time you, you pull that trigger, one day mm-hmm. might be your last day. So be careful. So um, has anyone ever encountered a, a trafficker who has flipped and is now an advocate for trafficking victims? I have not. I have not. I have not. I can't say I haven't met one in person. In our youth curriculum, there is a, a portion where we have a video from a trafficker, old trafficker named Iceberg Slim. And he used to traffic, and then he kind of realized how like sick it was. The and, Iceberg Slim. You're talking about yeah. the... Mm-hmm. And then when you listen to him kind of talk about the things that he used to do... It, it, he talks about it as like he uses words like it's just sick, this um disgusting and just his his kind of vitriol to his old life is just super impactful. And then it's kinda of interspliced with young folks who are glorifying it and he's just disgusted by the whole thing. So what can the public do to intervene? Are there any reference materials, resource resource people, agencies? What can we do? There are several <clears throat> agencies. The um, the National Human Trafficking Hotline, um, Polar- the Polaris Project. Um, you can uh, go online and research uh, a lot of information about human trafficking. Um, uh, the Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program that Alan's with, they have... Do you have that number for our listening audience? For the hotline? Yes, the hotline. The national hotline number is 1-888-373-7888. I'll repeat that. 1-888-373-7888. You never know who's listening. You can, our website is indysb.org. So indysb.org. Okay, we're down to just a few minutes left in our discussion. But what I want to ask is what is the very best way to start a conversation with my granddaughter or even my adult daughters about avoiding uh, being caught up in something like this. The best way to start a conversation. Tina? I think the number one thing is that we have to let um, kids know, um, and if we need to let adults know, that they are in charge of their own body. Um, I can remember my, you know, making older relatives uh, very angry because, you know, they'd see my kids on the holidays and say, you know, hey, come give me a hug or a kiss. And if, you know, my kids didn't want to, they didn't have to. Um, I made it really clear from the time they were tiny, your body is your own. You you kiss somebody, hug somebody because you want to, not because somebody is asking you to or somebody is in authority or even because somebody says they love you. So when we start, start these messages mm-hmm. very young, um, they grow up with this the sense of justice that um, that they're a value, um, and we need to remind whether they're teenagers or adults, remind them of that. No one, if if anyone is pressuring you to do anything that you makes you feel uncomfortable, that's a huge red flag. 
and you need to take a step back and you need to come talk about it with somebody you trust and decide whether this is a really healthy relationship for you. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are times when when people are grabbed off the street or, or you know, something. There's that huge act. But, you know, here in, in Monroe County, what we have seen over and over and over again, it's it's people who are desperate for relationship and they think they found it. So we need to teach people how to have healthy relationships. Um, you know, Campus Life uh, and other groups like that that go out into the schools, that, that's a great place to, to refer kids so that they can get that relationship. Um, many high school youth, or, or I'm sorry, many church youth groups and places like that, um, getting them connected there so that they, they don't have that risk factor of isolation. Tina, you, you brought up a very good point that had me thinking over here when you said, uh, when you mentioned children being in charge of their bodies, don't have to give somebody a hug if they don't want to. Now, I know older family members will demand mm -hmm. affection from younger family members. And if they don't, then, it's, you know, they kind of take it as a sign of disrespect. Right. Mm -hmm. But now now you have me thinking, because if you condition the children to respond to the demands that way, then who knows where where it stops. Absolutely. I mean, I know I had one relative that used to bring lollipops and like, give me a kiss first. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I mean, I just literally stepped in between and, you know, as the adult, let us be the bad guy. You know, I, I um, and I would say very lovingly, these family members, you know, I know you don't mean any harm, but we don't do that. That's not how that's not how we do things in our family. And and I, I think that's just important. In our final two minutes here, I'd like everyone to have a final comment for our listening audience, please. I will say um, like when you talked about conditioning, like one of the big things that we see and why it's so important for adults to get involved is because a lot of the youth who are in this situation come from vulnerable populations. So they don't realize in that moment that they are being trafficked. They don't realize in that moment that they're being forced through fraud or coercion to do something. They feel like it's a choice that I made. They feel like I may have chosen, chosen to run away. And that decision has put me here. They feel like I decided to get in this car. And so, they won't even in our presentation that we give we have a survivor who speaks and she was trafficked when she was 16 years old and she talks about she didn't realize that she was had been trafficked till she was in graduate school and was sitting in the presentation wow. and they were describing the situation and she said oh that was me and she had been out of it she was trafficked for six six months when she was 16. pastor shank last yeah. words I would say uh, educate well, yourself, be aware, and uh, not just be aware of what's going on, but uh, uh, the fact that it's happening, but be aware of your surroundings. Walk with your eyes open. If mm -hmm. you see something that's out of place, tell someone. If you see something that doesn't look right or doesn't feel right, look into a little farther or make a call to somebody because chances are something's not right. Let me change last words to final thoughts. That sounds a little bit too mortal, doesn't it? <laughs> Detective? Yeah, and mine kind of mirror what he said about if you see something, report it. Let the police investigate it. Don't do, don't discount it yourself or, or, do, or don't just investigate it yourself. <clears throat> report it to law enforcement. 
or the hotline and let the, uh, the, the professionals, you know, the investigators uh, look into this instead of uh, just brushing it off. I, I have a question, a, a real quick question on that because you mentioned the hotline before. And in a situation like that where it could be kind of desperate and you call the hotline, how fast do they actually, does something happen? It's di- disseminated really quick. Um, I'm one of them that gets uh, the hotline tips forwarded to me, and it's within minutes. Excellent. All righty. Well, we want to thank David Shunk, pastor of the Vineyard Community Church, Tina Lampke, the executive director of the Hannah Center, Ruben Marte, captain of the Indiana State Police, Detective Roger Logston uh, with the Indiana State Police, and Alan Bell, the regional coalition director for the Indiana Trafficking Assistance Program, for joining us to help us better understand the forces that work behind human sex trafficking. For more information on this topic, we recommend that you consider searching the following websites, humantraffickinghotline.org, thepolarisproject.org, and destinyrescue.org. Again, while we were not able to cover all aspects or or ask all of the questions that we wanted to in this one interview, we'll endeavor to revisit this topic topic more broadly during Women's History Month in March, and we hope that we can get most, if not all, of you back on the show to continue the conversation. Indeed. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is Bring it on at WFHB.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bring it on at WFHB.org. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB News website at wfhb.org news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at wfhb.org. As mentioned at the top of the show, We want to share a few upcoming events that are geared towards celebrating Black History Month in Bloomington. On Wednesday, January 31st at 6 p.m., the Black History Month Sankotas Ceremony and Opening Dinner at the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center Grand Hall. For more information, contact Monica Johnson at momgreen at indiana.edu. On Saturday, February 3rd at 1 p.m., the Rosa Parks Story written and performed by Gladys Devane, narrated by Elizabeth Mitchell, and directed by Danielle Bruce. Also, free bus rides all day and a free event at the Transit Center. Come see Rosa Parks and the Resilience Team. And on Monday, February the 5th at 11 p.m., the Indiana University's 16th Annual African American Read-In at the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center Grand Hall, sponsored by the IU School of Education and the Office of the Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Multicultural Affairs. For more information, contact Dr. Stephanie Power-Carter. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or, if you want additional information about a calendar item you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to thank David Schunk, pastor of Vineyard Community Church, Tina Lampke, executive director of Hannah Center, Ruben Manti, 
captain with the Indiana State Police, Roger Logsdon, detective with the Indiana State Police, and Alan Bell, victim's advocate and community educator, for joining us for a special roundtable discussion on sex trafficking. For more information on this topic, we recommend you consider searching the following websites. HumanTraffickingHotline.org, ThePolarisProject.org, and DestinyRescue.org. Again, while we were not able to cover all aspects of this topic in one interview, we will revisit this topic more broadly during Women's History Month in March. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Chris Martin. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effium with additional background tracks by David Baker. Tune in next Monday, February 5th at 6 p.m. for another exciting Bring It On broadcast right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.